This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that wonderful special music. I want to thank the music team in the evenings, you, well, every, every musician, uh, but I want to thank you especially at this time for the wonderful gift of music. Throughout church history, one of the greatest battles that the church has had to fight is the battle dealing with culture. When Jesus began his ministry, started the greatest movement of all time, the Christian church, it was something that was unpopular. And yet over time, as the message began to take its root in the heart of people, people began to accept the teachings of Scripture, the message of Jesus, but this multitude became mixed, and somehow, some way, culture began to impact the church. We live in a society today where the church is not only in danger of being impacted by culture, but it is also in danger of being impacted by politics. I'm not talking about politics that take place between one person and another, but I'm talking about global politics, national politics. It seems as though everywhere you look, politics has invaded our thinking. Wherever we turn, wherever we look, we see that politics is dominating the conversation and it has so changed the mentality of even Christians that now we think that in order to change the world, that in order to change the church, the same methods of politics must be applied. My brothers and sisters, if you don't believe this to be a legitimate problem, just scroll down the latest social media. Everywhere you turn, everywhere you read, it seems as though politics and culture have so gripped our minds that that is what we talk about more than even our walks with God. And I want to tell us today that it is impossible for us to advance the kingdom of God and to prepare an army of young people to meet their God while focusing on politics and while focusing on culture. Politics divides. The models have been stated throughout in the United States throughout the last several years. I'm with her. Let's make America great again. And I want to tell us today that I'm with him. And more than making America great again, we need to make Adventism good again. The church can only be changed. The world can only be won, not by something as attractive as greatness. It will be won, it will be changed by something less dramatic, something less attractive, something less beautiful and charming and shiny. And that something is you and me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, speak to our hearts. 
bypass the human instrumentality, and through the foolishness of preaching, apply your word to every individual heart that is present here today. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins speaks of different organizations, good organizations, that over the process of time became great organizations. He differentiates these organizations by different criteria. For example, he excludes Coca-Cola because he thinks that Coca-Cola had always been a great brand. But there are certain organizations that started off as good organizations, Fortune 500 companies, yet they lacked something that took them to the next level, the level of greatness. And so in his book, he outlines principles on how organizations and people can move from something that is good to something that is great. Why? Because we live now in a culture of greatness. And so, as he speaks in his book of these different organizations, he discovers or he shares principles of how it is possible for someone or some organizations to go from good to great. One of the foundational principles of his book is this, that good is the enemy of great. In other words, the reason why many people don't achieve greatness is because they're content to settle with goodness. I want to tell us today that, good, that great, many times, is actually something that is overrated. Let me share with you a story. When I was a high school student at Washington Hills Academy, I remember very clearly the principal of the school, Mrs. Clark, standing before a group of anxious students, me being one of them. We were in our third year in high school, and she began to hand out envelopes that contained the scores of each student who had just recently taken a standardized test, the PSAT. And as she shared these envelopes, she began to try to calm our nerves by saying, listen guys, don't worry. In the history of our school, most of our students do very well on these tests. And she said, as a matter of fact, never in the history of a school has anyone scored below this certain percentile. I opened up the envelope to discover that I was part of a particular group of people. I, for the first time in history, I created a new and distinctive group that scored in the one percentile. I think that to this day, no one in Washington Hills Academy has scored in the one percentile. Now, if I was to ask you here tonight, this evening, how many of you know someone that has scored in the 99th percentile of a standardized test? I would guess that many of you would raise your hands. As a matter of fact, in the work that I'm involved in today, I come across people who score in the 99th percentile of their tests and who know other people who do the same, so much so that they are unimpressed by this kind of score. And I think to myself, they're all average. But when I tell someone that I've scored in the 1 percentile, these people are shocked. They think to themselves, man, I thought you needed to be a lot smarter to score in the one percentile. Greatness is often overrated. We think about people who seek to accomplish great things 
and we discover that the truth of the matter is greatness is overrated. Also, in Scripture and in the church, great is the enemy of good. Great is the enemy of good. Think about it. We live in a society today where Instagram has taken over. We take pictures of ourselves on our phones, in our beds in the morning, acting as though we woke up with our makeup done, hashtagging just woke up. We want to be great and this obsession has caused many to come up with the dream of dropping out of school to launch a GoFundMe campaign to become self-employed and start up a company that will make them millionaires so that they can be an awesome Adventist philanthropist. But when the philanthropic opportunities come knocking on our doors and the offering plate is passed at church, we don't have enough money to give and we don't take advantage of those opportunities. Many times, in other words, we don't do something because it is not great enough. We talk about our need to go protest and go marching down the streets and promote social justice, and yet we walk down the streets of our city every day, homeless people asking for food, asking for support, and they go by without our notice because that is not great enough. In other words, because we seek to be great, we neglect the little opportunities that God places before us day after day after day. Heaven doesn't value greatness. It values the common little things that are often neglected. And we find this in Scripture. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 12. The Bible says in verse 1, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one that was with them, and he sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of the disciples, Judas, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the bag and he bare that which was put therein. Then Jesus said, Leave her alone. Against the day of my burying has, burying has she done this. The poor you have with you always, but me you don't have with you always. John tells us a story about Jesus and he lays the context by telling us that this event takes place just six days before the Passover. In other words, it takes place just six days before the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus is in Bethany, which is translated as the house of the poor. If you look at Mark's account and Matthew's account, you discover that there's another group of people 
the Pharisees, they've also gathered together. And on their radar, their topic of conversation is also Jesus. They're gathered in the city of Jerusalem, which is translated as the city of peace. The purpose of their gathering is to talk about Jesus, but it is not to honor him. As a matter of fact, they're gathered together to come up with a plan to crucify the Son of God. Two groups of people meeting, talking about Jesus, but with two different purposes. Friends, the question that we must first answer is, why are we here tonight? The fact that we are here at a conference that is seeking to speak about Jesus Christ does not guarantee that everyone is here because we want to honor him. Just because Jesus is being spoken of, just because Jesus is being talked about does not mean that we are gathered here today to honor the Son of God. In Bethany, they're there to honor him, and I'd like to think that the reason why we are here today is not to spend a nice evening in a cool hotel, or to enjoy the great food, or to ride on a school bus, or to hang out with our friends, or to get away from our parents or to visit a new city. But I like to think in my heart of hearts that the reason why we are here tonight is because we want to honor Jesus Christ. However, as this group of people gather in Bethany, the house of the poor, to honor Jesus Christ, something interesting takes place. The Bible says that sitting next to Jesus is a man named Lazarus. This is a man whom Jesus has raised from the dead. The greatest miracle that Jesus performs in the book of John, there are six of them. The culmination of these miracles is the resurrection of Lazarus, someone who has been in the grave so long that his body is beginning to decay. And the Word of God demonstrates so much power that it has the ability to transform a dead and decaying body and give life into that, dead, into that uh, lifeless form. On the other side... Matthew tells us and Mark tells us there's a man whose name is Simon. This man is the one who has actually thrown the feast. The Bible says that this man used to be a leper, outcast of society, outcast of the church. Because Jesus has given him his health, this man of great means seeks to celebrate the gift of Jesus Christ, and so to honor him, he throws a feast. The Bible tells us that there is another character in this story, a woman by the, name of, by the name of Martha. She is also invited to this feast, but the reason why she's invited is to serve, and so she is serving the guests. Finally, we're introduced to a woman in verse 3. This woman has no introduction regarding why she's there. We don't know why she's supposed to be there. She doesn't have any, spe any special task that she is uh, accomplishing. She's not the, uh, the person in charge of the feast. She's not Lazarus whom Christ has ra raised from the dead. The Bible just says that there's this woman named Mary who comes into the story because she takes an alabaster box breaks it open and begins to pour its content on the feet of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the effect is significant. 
The Bible says that this uninvited woman, on top of being uninvited, does something that is unimaginable. She breaks this perfume, and the perfume begins to fill the air with its aroma so that the whole house is full. Friends, if there's anything that's radical, that's radical. To go to a party that you are not even invited to and to instead of sitting down quietly and observing what is going on, you open up a bottle of heavily scented perfume and you dump its content on the feet of, of Jesus Christ and you begin to weep over this man. Talk about awkward moments. This is one. People begin to look at what is going on. And the Bible says that the response of the people there is not a positive one. Judas begins to get upset. And he begins to whisper to the other disciples, what in the world is this girl thinking? Why was this waste made as ultimately would have stated? Something that begins like a whisper when you compare the different accounts of the gospel writers. Something that begins like a whisper, mounts up and builds up steam to the point where people are now beginning to openly rebuke this, this person, this woman. Mary, what in the world were you thinking? Why have you wasted all this money? It could have been sold, they say, for 300 pence, 300 denarii. Other accounts tell us that it could have been sold for even more than that. And so we are now introduced to the cost of the gift that this woman gives to Jesus Christ. The cost is 300 denarii. In the parable of the workers that go into the vineyard, you remember that the first group of people came, they made a deal that they would work in the farm, and they agreed upon the price. The price was one denarii. And then the people that came the next hour and the next hour and the next hour and finally the 11th hour workers received one denarii as well. And the point of the parable was simply this, that the people that worked 11 hours were upset that the people that only worked one hour received the same wage. They said to themselves and to their master, how is it possible that these individuals that worked only one hour will receive the same compensation that a person would receive when they worked an entire day? The point of that parable for this purpose is this, that a person who worked an entire day would receive a salary of one denarii. And the Bible says that this woman, Mary, who poured this perfume on the feet of Jesus, poured a gift on the feet of Christ that was worth 300 denarii. That's, in other words, 300 days of working. If Mary lived today, that's about a year, and she worked minimum wage, that would probably be about a $20,000 gift. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Because if you did, all of a sudden you'd be thinking to yourself, why did she waste that much money? I mean, when we buy perfume, when we buy cologne, our stuff comes nowhere near the price that Mary paid for what she gave to Jesus. And when we use these kinds of gifts, we use them sparingly. 
we spray it, and then we walk into it. So it can get the whole body. Right there, there's a science to how we use these expensive perfumes. And we think to ourselves, Mary, I mean, couldn't you just have put a little bit of perfume on the feet of Jesus? That would have been enough. But Mary wasted an entire pound of spikenard on the feet of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that the comment was made, why was this waste made? By all appearances, the gift of Mary was not a gift of greatness or an act of greatness, but one of wastefulness. But what determines whether or not Mary wasted on Jesus or whether she gave him a good gift? This depends upon what Christ has done for us. Whether or not we consider the gift of Mary to be a good gift or a waste depends on how we value the gift that Jesus has given to us. You see, for Mary, it was not a waste to waste on Jesus because Jesus had done so much for her. It was Jesus who raised her brother from the dead. It was Jesus who cast out seven demons out of her. It was Jesus who saved her life when at the, uh, at the point of being caught in adultery, the rest of the, of the society wanted to put her to death. And because of everything that Jesus had done for her, wasting on Jesus was not a waste. Secondly, what is it critical for us to acknowledge about the story is the fact that Mary not only wasted on Jesus, but she wasted on Jesus at the right time. Jesus was six days from his crucifixion. And at a time when people sought to honor Christ with measured gifts, Mary gave everything that she had. Many times we say, we don't want to give everything that we have to Christ. It would be a waste. Or sometimes we think we're willing to waste on Jesus, but not right now. Let me waste on Jesus when I have something significant to offer him. Mary says to you and to me, no, waste on Jesus and waste on him right now. It is better to waste on Jesus now with what we have than to wait until we have something greater to offer him. Although society has played with our minds to strive for that which is great, Jesus is saying, no, don't strive for that which is great. Strive for that which is good. And that which is good is giving everything that we have to Jesus Christ at the right time, and that right time is now. A good work is better than a great work. And so Jesus responds to these people, leave her alone. In another passage in Scripture, in Mark's account or in Matthew's account, it says, She has done a good work. And to the Marys of today, Jesus' response is, Why do you trouble them? Why do we trouble people that radically seek to give God everything that they have? Leave them alone. They are doing a good work. Mary's good work was more valuable than everyone else's great work. 
The Bible tells us that the story of Mary will be told everywhere the gospel is preached. And I've often wondered why that is. Why is a story so significant that it, that it should be mentioned whenever, wherever the gospel is preached? Although we think Mary's gift is great, it actually isn't. Turn with me your Bibles just a few pages over to the book of John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, speaking after the crucifixion of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Christ, and there also came with him Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. And they took the body of... Sorry. Uh, yeah, and they... Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices as a manner of the Jews is to bury. Did you just catch what Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did? If you want to talk about a great gift, this is a great gift. The Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus Christ and they gave him a gift of myrrh, which by the way is comparable to spikenard in its value. It was a gift that was given to the kings. Very costly. And it says that they took this myrrh about a hundred pounds worth and with it they buried the body of Jesus Christ. If you want to talk about a great gift, there was no greater gift than the gift that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea gave to Jesus Christ. It was a hundred times more the gift of Mary. But listen, listen to what the Desire of Ages says concerning the gift of Joseph of Arimathea. The fragrant gift which Mary had thought to lavish upon the dead body of the Savior, she poured upon his living form. At the burial, his sweetness could only have pervaded the tomb. Now, it gladdened his heart with the assurance of her faith and love. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus offered not their gift of love to Jesus in his life. With bitter tears, they brought their costly spices for his cold, unconscious form. The women who had bore spices to the tomb found their errand in vain, for he had risen. But Mary, pouring out her love upon the Savior while he was conscious of her devotion, was anointing his body for his burial. And as he went down into the darkness of his great trial, he carried with him the memory of that deed in earnest of the love that would be his from his redeemed ones forever. Did you catch the significance of what is said there in the book, Desire of Ages? She tells us that the gift that Mary gave was a reminder of Jesus during the darkest hour of his time 
It was a reminder that uh, it was a reminder. What does it say here? It was a reminder of an earnest of the love that would be his from his redeemed ones forever. In other words, the gift of Mary was, was supposed to be the first fruits in the mind of Christ, a reminder of the love that you and I, when we go to heaven, will demonstrate to God, to Him, for the rest of our lives. During the darkest hour of Jesus' life, as He walked from place to place, the trial after trial after trial to the very cross itself, there was but one reminder that there would be something special after this hell that he experienced would all be over. And that reminder was given to him by none other than Mary herself. Think about that. Now friends, nobody, nobody, no human being has ever saved humanity. But when Christ wrestled over my salvation, Mary's perfume encouraged him to save my life. Yeah, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they gave a lot of money to Jesus. But it was worthless. It was worthless because it fell upon a lifeless form. And this is why the story of Mary is forever told. The story of Mary is forever told because if there was any human being who played any role in your salvation and mine, it was Mary. It was Mary's perfume that encouraged Christ. Although all these people will forsake you, although Peter has run away, although John is nowhere to be found, I believe that you are Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Go and die for my sins. And when you are resurrected, and when you come as a King of kings and Lord of lords, and when the redeemed of the earth enter into the gates of heaven, there will be more Marys that will show their love and devotion to you throughout eternity. Jesus, in the darkest hour of your life, press on and save humanity. Friends, greatness is the enemy of goodness because if we wait to be like Joseph of Arimathea, if we wait to be like Nicodemus, if we wait to become millionaires before we give everything that we are to the cause of Jesus Christ, we will never do it. We'll never do it. Greatness never comes. Don't do something great. Do something now. Forget the obsession with trying to become something better and better and better although as, though some, as though we can make ourselves good enough to be useful in the service of Christ. It is not the capabilities that we now possess. It is not the capabilities that we'll ever possess that will make us worthy to work in the service of Jesus Christ. It is only what God can do for us. There are moments in history when greatness is eclipsed. Story is told about a woman by the name of Julie Moss. She was a student studying in California trying to earn a degree in education. And as part of her, uh, 
experiment program. She signed up to run one of the most difficult races in the United States and really around the world. It's called an Ironman, which, by the way, our uh, outgoing president, Moise, he didn't run two-thirds, he ran the whole thing and maybe a little extra. We've got to make that correction for him because I know Justin switched the story a little bit there. Julie Moss embarked upon this journey. No training. Had never even completed the three disciplines that make the race. The race begins with a two-mile swim, more than 112 miles on the bike, and then you top it off with the full marathon. Julie Moss had never completed all three things. And when she showed up in Kona, Hawaii, she started the race. To her surprise, and to the surprise of many people watching on television, she was actually in first place. As she began the marathon, she began to build the distance between her and the second place person by more than a minute, or more than a mile. But something happened towards the end of the race. About 400 yards or so before the finish line, she experienced dehydration and she had no nutrition in her body. She says that she actually had carried with her a Snickers bar, but because the TV cameras were there, she did not want to open it up because it was melted and she would not look nice on TV. So she threw the thing away. 400, mi or 400 meters or yards before the finish line, her body was completely depleted of energy, and she began to stumble towards the finish line. Her body actually looked as though it was deformed and convulsing. She struggled to put one foot after the other, and although she was determined in her mind to finish the race, she fell down to the ground. She got up. She saw the finish line in front of her, and she began to walk towards the finish line, putting one foot after another. She fell again. This time she could not get up, and she begins to explain what is going through her mind. And she says, I made a deal with myself that I would finish the race, and I'm going to finish the race. And so she put her hands in front of her, she spread her legs behind her, stood up like a tripod, and forced her way up and began again. But she fell. The person behind her got closer and closer and closer, and finally passed her up passed her up just before she finished the race. Julie speaks of this experience, and she said that at that point, she said to herself, I quit. There's no point in finishing this race. I lost the race. There's no point in continuing. And it was at that time that a voice came to her and said, you made a deal with yourself that you would finish the race, so finish the race. And so she began to crawl, and crawl, and crawl, until she crawled over the finish line. Television reporters said, the sport of Ironman will never be the same again. When you run most races, they say now, you can run, walk, or crawl 
across the finish line. You know what's significant about this? What's significant about this race is the fact that although Julie Moss never won, and although she made a fool of herself by many accounts, crawling over the finish line, although she's known as the person who wobbled across and looked as though she was convulsing, although she's known as the woman who went to the bathroom on herself as she crossed across the finish line. Nobody remembers, I shouldn't say nobody, because some people do, but rarely do we remember the person who even won the race. We remember Julie Moss, but we have to go back and look to see who, who was it that actually won this race. Friends, being number one is not what it's all about. Oh yeah, we need to strive for excellence. But excellence is not determined by what we achieve. Excellence is determined by how much of ourselves we're willing to give. And when a person gives all to anything, that person is recognized. Friends, we don't live in a time where Jesus needs your riches. We don't live in a time where Jesus needs your greatness. We don't live in a time when Jesus needs our talents. We live in a time when Jesus needs you now. That's the time in history that we live in today. A time where Jesus does not need our greatness. He needs us now. I want to challenge you this evening as we conclude this great conference. What has been the driving force in your spirituality? We have more than a thousand people coming to prayer groups. That's great. But will we have one person going to prayer group every morning in your house, in your room, when you're by yourself? Oh, we have many buses going out on outreach, handing out stuff, rebuilding churches. But will we have one person go back home and do something for their community, all alone, without the spotlights? We've accomplished a lot of great things, but will we do what is good when we go home? That's the question that we need to answer. So my appeal for you tonight is this. How many of you feel God's call upon your heart to not do something great, but to do something now? As you've been sitting through this conference, through this convention, as you walk down the halls and you see the different booths that are here, you pass by Adventist Frontier Missions. People are dying all over the world, dying all over the world without even the opportunity of knowing the name of Jesus Christ. There are people that have come here. We have a youth director from Hong Kong who is telling me that they need people to go to Asia to serve as missionaries. There are people, places that need people who will serve in some of the most dangerous places in the earth. 
who will boldly share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in a big, massive place like this, but home by home, person by person, with little success. But people who understand that greatness is never something that is revealed openly, but rather it is something that is only estimated in the private halls of heaven. You've heard the stories of people that need to go, be, that need to go preach sermons all around the world. People who will go, who will sacrifice their education, who will pay for themselves to go, who will work uh, and make money and pay for themselves to go. People who will go door to door in different places in the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it's through an evangelistic campaign or in the darkest places in earth's history. These are the kind of people that we need, and these are the kind of people that we need now. We need Marys. That's essentially what we need. Someone that will not say, this is a waste. Someone that is willing to say, I am aware of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for me. I am aware enough of the cost that Jesus paid for my salvation that there is no limit to the wasting that I'm willing to do to give back to my master. I work on public university campuses. More than 70% of our young people, like you, are attending schools that are not Seventh-day Adventist. Many of these people are losing their faith. By the time many of you reach my age, many will have left the church. We need people to go as missionaries across the world, and we need them across the street. We need them on our public university campuses. We need people who will not go for greatness, not go for numbers, not go for fame, but people who will go now. I want to make an appeal to you. If the Lord is calling upon your heart to give your all to Jesus right now, not tomorrow, not next year, not when you become something great, but right now. This appeal is for you. We don't want people who are impulsive. We don't want people who have nothing to do. We don't want people who have nothing to sacrifice, no cost to pay. We want young people who, after counting the cost and understanding the cost that Jesus has paid for them, will say, if I believe that Jesus is in fact coming soon, I do not care what everyone else is going to say. I don't care the people, if people are going to say, man, you're wasting your youth, you're wasting your means, you're wasting your talents. I want to give my life to Jesus today in service for Him. I want to do something good and not care so much about doing something great. If that's you, I want to call upon you to respond to this appeal. I'm especially calling upon young people who are between the ages of 18 to 25. If this fits you, you are a young person between the ages of 18 to 25, the prime of your young adult life, and you sense God's calling to give everything that you have, everything that you are to Jesus Christ today and work for Him immediately. Give a year of your life to Him. I want to call upon you to come up here with me and answer this appeal.
This appeal is not for everyone. This appeal is only for a few. If you fit this category between the ages of 18 to 25, and you have looked at your life, you look at what God has done for you, you say, I want to give at least a year of my life. I want to give five years of my life. I want to give everything that I have in my life. Surrender it to Jesus Christ because of what he has done for me. I want you to come up so we can pray for you. God bless you. God bless you. God is looking for a group of young people that will not focus on something that is great, but do for him something now. We can't close this meeting without making an appeal for that young person who has yet to give their life to God and express it through baptism. Is there someone here tonight as we close this conference that wants to give their life to Christ, never been baptized? You want to say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to make, take my stand with God's people. I want to become a baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, God's remnant church. I want to prepare for baptism. I want to study the Bible. I want to find out for myself what it takes to be baptized, a disciple of Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand wherever you are. Never been baptized before. You want to to be baptized. I see your hands. God bless you. We want to pray for you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you have never asked us to be great. You've only asked us to selflessly follow you with everything that we have. There's a group of young people before you tonight who want to follow you, and we want to pray that you'd bless them. There's a group of people tonight that want to be baptized. They want to give their lives to you through baptism, be buried buried in Christ and resurrected in new life. Bless those commitments and make them disciples of Jesus Christ. Father, as we, as we get ready to welcome the soon coming of Jesus Christ, give us, give us a deeper yearning to surrender everything that we have to follow you. This is my prayer. And I offer it from my heart in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.